0: Um it's been a while since we've talked last. Um this uh, pandemic um I was hoping would be uh, an opportunity to uh, spend a lot of time working and creating, but uh I know a lot of us have been struggling with focus and I have been suffering that sim- same affliction um and I've just not been as productive as I'd hope I'd be, but um I'm very excited about this episode, and I'm very excited that there's another one that I'm almost done with that will quickly follow this one, so uh, hopefully you're going to have quite a bit of content in the next few weeks, and I'm excited for that. Um, after this, we're going to have one more episode about the mission system uh, before we move on to our next topic, and I'll save uh, a discussion of what that is for the next episode. So um, today we're going to be looking at the mission in San Juan Capistrano, so let's get going. This time we're going to travel to Southern California. I was originally going to take you to the Mission Dolores, um, the famous mission that's contained within the Mission District of San Francisco, but I decided to go to Southern California instead. Um, We could spend a lot of time in Northern California, uh, but the mission system has an equally long and eventful history in the South. Uh, the San Juan Capistrano mission, where we'll spend our time today, was the seventh of Junipero Serra's 21 missions that were established in California. Um, a week into colonization, though, the mission was forced to evacuate in order to reinforce the Mission San Diego, uh, following the outbreak of the armed conflict, which we covered in a previous episode. Um, the mission quickly came into contact with the indigenous people called the Ashuman, um, a native group that uh, we have not discussed here at length, uh, but we'll spend a few minutes covering. Uh, this native group was located in Long Beach, Orange County, and then northern San Diego counties. Uh, there were two main villages or settlements of the Ashaman: one near San Clemente and then one near San Juan Capistrano, which is where the mission that we'll be discussing today is located. Uh, the life of the Ashramon people was fairly peaceful. Um, workload was shared evenly among the community, but jobs were... Uh, typically divided uh, for people in the tribe along typical gender lines. Men uh, primarily handled the hunting and fishing. Uh, the coastal location of these tribes meant that fishing uh, happened along the shoreline and um, that it was a primarily smaller fish uh, along the shoreline. The boats that they made were made of tule, uh, a reed we discussed at length in the episode in the Central Valley uh, that we talked about, the Yokuts. Another typical job associated with men was that of the shaman. Uh, the shaman was both a hereditary role and a job that required an investment of time and money. Uh, one had to buy uh, the tools in the trade, uh, primarily the tools from preparing medicine and the herbs that are required for the rituals. Now, speaking of the rituals, there were many rituals associated with being a shaman, including dancing, chanting, um, and then making uh, various types of... Uh, well, A crude word we might use is potions. Now, women, on the other hand, uh, handled most of the domestic tasks, including storing of food, uh, cooking, making vessels, including baskets, harvesting, meaning gathering things, and many, many, many other tasks. Uh, Like many of the native people we've met along our journey, the Ashuman adapt to their environment and really understood their symbiotic relationship with it. Young Ashaman were taught about all the important flora and fauna of where they lived and its medicinal and nutritional value. Now, one belief system of the Ashaman people was the belief in a deity, which I'm going to do my best to pronounce, um, Chinich, um, which is a deity perhaps that reserved or served as kind of a catch-all for all of the religious components of the life of these people. Um, one interesting belief was that this god or deity used animals as spies uh, to enforce a moral code. Uh, many of the spies were either dangerous or carnivorous animals, which I suppose is kind of a mythological in, uh, explanation for why some animals may want to hurt uh, humans. Um, and this kind of reminds me of this uh, belief system um, that I found when reading a book by an economist named Russ Roberts called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And it's this idea of an impartial observer. Uh, What an impartial observer is, is kind of a fictitious thing you create in your head uh, or imagine uh, when you're alone and you're about to do something um, and you feel this weird tinge of guilt or like someone's watching you And Adam Smith referred to this character uh, in our heads as the impartial observer, and that serving as a way to determine whether an action is moral or not, uh, whether if there was someone watching, would you still do what you're going to do? And I think this simple moral principle um, has amazing uh, implications for uh, how we live, and it's relatively simple to explain and understand. I think the same thing is going on here with the belief of the Ashiman people. It's a way uh, to encourage people to live moral lives when no one's looking. Um, So uh, I really like uh, this concept a lot. Now, we visited the Ashiman people to give you a sense of uh, who was there when the Spanish arrived to plant a mission in this area. Uh, Now that you have a picture in your head of the life of these people, think about the kind of work that we described in the previous episode. It's important to to pause here and caution that life on the mission was very different than from, say, a plantation in the antebellum South. The, the economy of the antebellum South, uh, to continue this example, was one based around staple crops, like cotton, for example. Uh, these staple crops needed to be produced at the lowest marginal cost and then were sold for profits. Um, and they're mostly sold to uh, foreign buyers, um, at least in the post-revolution United States. Now, this differs, this antebellum South, where what we have pictured in our minds, uh, slaveholders and slaves working to produce cotton, for example, uh, this differs dramatically from the economy of a mission, um, which is which was much more related to subsistence or sustenance. Okay? Um, Even though natives were taught specific trades or crafts starting in the 1790s, uh, many were asked to rotate to other jobs when certain things were in season. Uh, So the work then was laborious, but not the kind that uh, you might picture a slave uh, doing in order to sell one type of product, the same labor over and over again. It was much more geared around what was needed at a particular time. Um, Now, as taxing as some of the awful labor that was uh, forced upon slaves. Um, Native people were not always willing participants, obviously. Um, Runaways were common, um, such that priests often needed to enlist the help of soldiers uh, that were at the presidio to try and return their quote-unquote willing workers back to their labors. Um, Given what we've discussed about the relationship of missions and priests to the soldiers at the Presidios, you can imagine that this request represented um, a move towards more coercive behavior. Um, apparently, these efforts to run down runaways was successful, but had residual effects that lingered in the mission community. Another issue that came up was illness, both real and feigned. Uh, according to some missionaries, Native people were quite good at faking a uh, cough and wouldn't show up to work in part because they likely didn't understand or like the style of agricultural development that the priests wanted to create at the mission, or just because they realized they were creating uh, food and resources for an economy uh, that didn't necessarily benefit them. Now, uh, the missions um, oscillated between mass exodus and slow attrition over time. Uh, When priests would give native people opportunities to return home, they would oftentimes not return, uh, severely decreasing the workforce of the mission. Now, interestingly, this is something I discovered in my research, uh, many natives did not delineate between their work at the mission and the work of their more typical lives, um, oftentimes doing both at the same time. For example, while a native was working the fields, she might also be gathering roots while she completed her duties assigned by the priest. In spite of uh, splitting time while working the fields, natives were quite adept at the tasks, such that the Spanish colonies did not... um, need external supplements of resources uh, from uh, Mexico or New Mexico, um, and they were pretty self-reliant. Now, uh, we've not spent much time discussing labor in the Presidios. From what we understand, uh, the Presidios were nowhere near, uh, had nowhere near the economic need uh, that missions had. Nonetheless, uh, Presidios still had a fair amount of labor that needed to get done, Apparently, the soldiers stationed at the Presidios uh, believed that the labor to maintain them was beneath them um, and complained about the pay-to-work ratio, uh, that they were being paid low wages to do things that were uh, beyond their duties. Uh, Native people were often recruited for labor projects on the Presidios as well. But let's get back to San Juan Capistrano. After 1812, like we said before, uh, the mission went into decline, In fact, in the year of 1812, uh, that December specifically, there was an earthquake that caused the roof of the main stone church to collapse, which is fairly reminiscent of what happened in Carmel. Uh, Following Mexican independence in 1821, the mission was eventually sold in 1845 to John Forrester. Uh, The mission remained a private ranch for the next 20 years until the missions were returned to the Catholic Church in 1865 by, in fact, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, In fact, one of the last things that Lincoln signed before a bullet took him from the world was a document that brought missions back into the guardianship of the Catholic Church. Uh, uh, Lincoln signed this document on March 18, 1865. This document upheld a decision by the Land Commission and a petition by a Catholic bishop, a petition that was nearly 15 years old at this point, um, to return the missions to the Catholic Church's control. According to the Catholic Church, Uh, the lands had been illegally sold by the Mexican government. Um, The current owner of the mission at San Juan Capistrano was, again, John Forrester, who was actually an Englishman uh, born in Liverpool, um, home of the best football team in the United Kingdom. Actually, I'm not much of a football person, but my roommate in graduate school was um, and is a diehard fan of Liverpool and would regularly watch those games at four in the morning when they air live Um, in our shared bedroom. He was on the top bunk, and when they would score, he would shake our bed so violently that I woke up in fear of the San Andreas Fault finally bringing us the big one. Alas, it was just a soccer goal. Uh, In any case, Forrester came to Mexico to work for a family member and eventually made his way to California when he was around 30. Uh, John Forrester would eventually become one of the largest landowners in California. And I want to save uh, Forrester's full story for a later episode because he has such a wild and interesting story that deserves an episode of its own. Just like the Carmel mission in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, preservationists and concerned citizens expressed interest in preserving the mission and bringing the worn-down features back to its original glory. Now... Um, I, there's much more I could uh, talk about in regards to the mission, but for now I would encourage you to visit the mission if you're in the San Clemente area or on your way uh, to or from San Diego. Uh, And that will do it for today's episode. Uh, Next week, we'll have one more mission that we're going to visit before we move on to our next topic. Um, I know that these uh, episodes are brief and the topics that I'm covering could have their own podcast, but again, and I say this um over and over again um the point of this podcast is to give you a broad overview of california history covering different topics to give you uh kind of a generalist grasp of uh, what makes what made what made california what it is today uh, we can only do that with any sense of sanity um if we just uh, cover things in small batches so um I hope this episode was informative and I'll see you next time.